All right, as we continue uh, to work through the Bible together uh, in this year, and just a note, um, for those of you who have been uh, engaged in the Bible reading program and have kept up, which would be all of you, uh, let me just offer my congratulations. Uh, Well done. If you've been able to go from January until now, it's not likely that you're going to uh, quit uh, between now and December 31st. So you're already basically there. Now, if some of you have, um, what is it, October is the 10th month. If some of you have 10 and a half months to get caught up on, uh, you can still do it. Uh, You just need to dedicate a little bit of time uh, to working through it. The Bible actually is just, it is just a book. Uh, It it can be read. Uh, You can can do that. And so if you can, you you can take a day, if you get up early on a Saturday, uh, with lots of coffee, uh, you can you could probably knock off the New Testament on a Saturday if you just read it. You really can. Uh, so if you can read the New Testament in a day, uh, then you can read the Bible in four days. Take time off work, get caught up. I don't know why you're laughing. I was quite serious. Uh, you can do, oh, you're laughing because some of you are retired, and you don't need to take time off work, but you'll still take the four days to read the Bible. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 10 uh, this week. One of the messages uh, that we have is the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. So Jeremiah uh, chapter 10, this is the word of God. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them, for the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nail so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great. Your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, King of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. 
Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless. The objects of mockery, when their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. Four, he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege, for this is what the Lord says. At this time I will hurl you out, or I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness and I must endure it. My tent is destroyed. All its ropes are snapped. My children are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper. And all their flock is scattered. Listen, the report is coming. A great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the towns of Judah desolate. A haunt of jackals. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Discipline me, Lord, but only in due measure, not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Lord, you are uh, the great God and the eternal King. Uh, There is no one like you. There is... There's just no one like you. You are in a category all by yourself. Lord, I pray that even this morning you will uh, wean us away from uh, those things which we uh, may make into idols in our lives. Uh, I pray that you will help us understand your word and your character, that you will teach us how to live. Lord, I pray that you will direct our steps well. I pray that we will be able to delight ourselves in you and then to receive the desires of our heart. Lord God, help us to genuinely love and honor you uh, above everything else and everyone else. God, you alone know uh, the circumstances of our lives. You alone know uh, the unique joys and pains that we experience. You alone know uh, the frame of mind and state of heart that every individual in this room has uh, right now. And we pray that by your Spirit you will meet every one of us where we are, that you will touch our hearts, that you will draw us close to you.
Help us to see truth, not to be uh, not to be confused by the offerings of the world, but to truly understand you and your ways. For you are a great God. You are worthy to be praised. Help us to see it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just um, just one quick thing about Sunday school. Next Sunday, in the adult Sunday school, uh, myself and Megan Durkee are going to try to convince you to be Bible-believing, Evangelical feminists. And so you will want to be here for that because we are going to make a compelling case, aren't we, Megan? Yes. Yes, indeed we are. Uh, So you're going to want to be here for that. I think it's actually desperately important, desperately important today that we in the church understand that there are things that go under the label of feminism in our society that we want to distance ourselves from. But there are things that feminism has done which the church needs to support in every way. And tacitly, many of you already support those things. You just don't identify with that label. So in the next week, we're going to be working through uh, this. I'm going to be uh, trying to present a little bit of a uh, historical, sociological reading of the movement. And even when I say that, it sounds exciting to me. So you are going to want to be here. And uh, we haven't, I actually don't know what Megan's job is. Megan's job is going to be to say amen and preach it. That's going to be what you do. Um, actually, you can tell me what you're going to do because we're feminists. So that's how we'll work it out. You, you want to be here next week. I'm being serious at this point. Uh, I'm going to be presenting uh, an argument for an evangelical complementarian feminism. That is, where we honor and recognize what's good in feminism and recognize that the Bible does teach distinctive roles for men and women in some ways. Very, very few. Very few. Uh, But in some. All right. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs of the heavens, so the nations are terrified by them, for the practices of the people are worthless. Now, he's not saying, don't know what's going on in the nations around you. Uh, Clearly, he's not saying that, because he goes on to talk about what the nations around them are doing. In fact, one of the things that is extraordinarily important to understand is this. If you are to avoid sort of falling prey to the fluctuations of popular opinion. You need to be deeply grounded in the Bible, but you also need to understand intellectual movements in society around you. Because society always influences their thinking. It is not possible to hermetically seal yourself off as a Christian from society. You just can't do it. It is not possible. So there's no point even trying. But even the monastic communities that attempted to do that were reflections of the culture in which they were formed. So, so we could even go off and start our own little commune. 
But the very fact that we would do that uh, would still actually have as much to do with culture as we would have to do with anything else. So we need to begin with the recognition that if we're not going to learn the ways of the nations, we actually have to know what the ways of the nations are. Uh, when Paul says, beware of philosophy, what he's saying is, don't get trapped by deceitful systems that oppose themselves against God. But how are you going to avoid getting trapped by them if you have no idea how they percolate through society? So you have to understand that often, there's this great lag, there's about a one-generation lag between what's taught in high academic circles and what society is teaching. It just takes a while to filter down. So you have academics who push agendas who, who form thinkers and leaders, and then as those thinkers and leaders start to take up positions of teaching in, in elementary schools or wherever, just interacting with people, they begin to pass on through this new conventional wisdom and teaching and ideas. And then it starts getting picked up in popular level forms, it starts getting sort of tweeted out, it ends up on Facebook, and unless you understand where these ideas are coming from and what they're grounded in, it's very easy to just sort of adopt an, an Oprah-type culture where it's said often enough that we begin to believe it. So Paul is not saying, or Paul, Jeremiah here, is not saying, listen, don't have anything at all to do with the world. In fact, quite the opposite. He's going to skewer the practices of the nations around them. He's going to say, this is what they're doing, and here's why it's futile. And this is what we need to train ourselves to be able to do as Christians today. We need to be able to actually understand the cultural currents around us so that when we represent the gospel, we know to whom we are speaking, we're able to use that vocabulary, but we're also able to show the strength of the Christian worldview versus the places in the other worldviews where there are always points of, of discord, always points of incoherence. That's what we need to be able to do. So don't imitate the nations. After all, God says to the people of Israel, that is, you are my covenant people. Why are you aping the nations? Why are you afraid of everything everyone else is afraid of? You know, why are you running around as if I am not your God? Why are you acting as if I have no power than the gods of the nations who are nothing but idols that they themselves have made? After all, they go out into the forest. And they cut down a tree. You also get this sort of parody in the book of Isaiah. You know, in Isaiah, there's just this blistering satire of idolatry, where someone goes out and you know, they, they cut down a tree, and, and they, they have their meal, they, they make their cooking fire out of the wood, there's some wood left over, they say, oh, what should I do? Oh, well, maybe I'll make an idol, I'll make a god, and I'll fall down and worship it. You just cut down a tree, you burned most of it, and now you're making a god to worship out of the remainder. This is absolute folly. Cut a tree out of the forest, a craftsman shapes with his chisel. Then they adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers and nails so it will not totter. In other words, the, this god who's going to be protecting you is so powerful, it can't even keep itself from falling over. You know, you need to nail it up. You need to brace it up or else it's going to fall over. It can't talk. It can't walk. You need to carry it to where it's going. It's an impediment in every way. In fact, later in the book, what we're going to find is when the Babylonians come in and uh, destroy Jerusalem, 
One of the things that positively hinders the people is they're trying to carry their gods with them to safety. If they would just drop the gods, they could run faster. And what kind of help do you get from a god who's an impediment and that you need to carry him rather than the god of Israel who carries his people out of Egypt on eagles' wings? You know, the living and the true God. Now, just a note. It has been mentioned um, in the in the numerous, numerous announcements. It's not Rick's fault. He's just doing what he's told. He did a brilliant job uh, working through them all. Uh, but there is there is a lunch today for students, for, uni- for the university and college students. Costa Tuni. Now, every I can't say everyone can afford that. I don't know. But I assume the odds are that in today's generation, everyone has an actual literal toonie is not high, given how often no people have no cash whatsoever. So if you're here and you say, I could afford it, but I just don't have that physical form, I don't think we're taking visa. You know, I, I don't think uh, you can have your OSAP transferred to us directly. So what we're going to say is this. Even if you don't have any physical money, you can still come. In fact, you are encouraged to come. I'm sure there's some philanthropist here, some big spender, who's just been longing to take 10 students out for lunch for 20 bucks. So there will be someone here who covers you. It'll be totally fine. We want absolutely everyone to stay. Because there's also entertainment afterwards. Now this is, no, no, it's not for you. No, no. No, it's only for the students. David Enns. Gentleman here in the front has been wanting to play basketball up in our gym for quite some time. And he has been chirping me about joining him to play basketball. And so today, after lunch, I am going to dunk on David Enns. Probably. The only reason it's a contingency is I'm not sure he will be brave enough to stand in the paint when he sees all of this flying towards him in total command of the ball. And so we'll just see if he clears out or if I jump over him. Yet to be determined, but you want to be there. Now let's say that David recognizes, because he's he's wise, he recognizes that when it comes to basketball or anything athletic like powerlifting or arm wrestling, there's no way that he could have a prayer of defeating me. And so he says, what am I going to do? I need help. I'm going to take the bench where I would be sitting because Steve would be the starter, and I am going to cut off the end of it, and I'm going to form a god. And I'm going to carry that god around with me on the basketball court because he's going to help me. Now, the truth of the matter is, it should be relatively obvious that if you have to carry around a god, this god is useless. You can dress it up. You can cover it in silver and gold. You can drape it in purple garments. You can put it in your team uniform. But this God is positively a hindrance. And that's exactly what the message is. Think about how helpful these gods are. You made it. You carry it. You secure it. You dress it up. And then you need to carry it around. And it's hindering you from life. What would be the smart thing to do? Get rid of it. Drop it. Be done with it. They do not fear them. Why are you afraid, Israel, people of God? Why are you afraid of all the things that people are worshipping? Why are you so afraid about the economy? 
Why are you so afraid about that? Why are you so afraid about uh, the political situation? Why are you so afraid about that? Is there a living God or not? Now, Now, if the world is truly nothing more than the idols we make and the machinations of people, then there's no hope for any of us anyway. So you may as well stop worrying about it. But if there's a living God, why fear what the nations fear? No one is like you, Lord, verse 6. Notice the inclusio. It starts verse 6 and ends verse 7. No one is like you, Lord, verse 6. No one is like you, the ending in verse 7. That's the governing idea. Why is no one like the Lord? No one is like the Lord because he alone is great. His name or his character is mighty in power. He's deserving of fear. Who should not fear you? He's the king of the nations. Amongst all of the other leaders, none excel him and none equal him. There is no one like him. They dress up their idols in blue and purple. Verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. The word here, true, could also be translated as real or genuine. All of these other idols are obviously fakes. They're obviously useless. They can't do anything. The real God, the genuine God, is the God of Israel. He is, verse 10, the living God. That is, he's not inanimate. He, he has life in himself. Nothing else has this property. Uh, this is actually one of the amazing attributes of God. He's a property of aseity. He is from himself. Uh, every other life form is derivative and dependent. But God himself is independent. He doesn't need anything. The source of his own life is in his own nature. Nothing else is like that at all. He's the eternal king. He's not a temporal nothing like these idols. And although the idols can do you no harm, nor can they do you any good, when this God is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath, unlike these idols that are not even capable of acting. The true God, the living God, the eternal king, a God of anger and wrath. Verses 11 through, or verses 6 through 16, we've already worked through some of this section, verses 11 through 16 particularly, will expand on these themes, that God is a creator, God's the sustainer of his creation, and he's the director of the world. In fact, he sends lightning, uh, he causes the clouds to rise from one end of the earth to the other. These idols are made out of what God has made. God has made all of the created order. He's made this matter. He's made these trees. He's made this wood. He's made the molecular structure. He's made all the laws and and the rules through which he governs and holds things together. And people take those things and they, they, they honor those things above the living God. These, these things are not anyone's creator. They, they themselves are merely part of the creation. Romans 1 teaches so very clearly that the fundamental sin of human beings is simply knowing God and not considering knowing God worthwhile. Rejecting the knowledge of God, preferring created things to the living God. 
As a result, because of what the people are doing, God is going to bring judgment on the nations and also on Judah, because Judah is worshipping these gods too. So in verse 17, Jeremiah is given, uh, there, there are these instructions given. Gather up your belongings. You're going to be leaving the land. This is what the Lord says. At this time, it will hurl out. This is the word for a stone. Sometimes a word, uh, the word hurl is often used uh, in military context where a stone is hurled out of a sling. There's a violence here. The people aren't just being escorted out of the land. They're being thrown out of the land. They're being hurled out of the land uh, with violence. At this time, I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. Everything is destroyed. And this is my sickness, and I must endure. This is the lot that God has at this time. It's punishment and it's despair. The home is destroyed. The children are gone. The shepherds are supposed to be guarding the flock. These, of course, it's a metaphor for all of the leaders at every level of of sort of uh, political and religious government in this time. The shepherds are useless. They're worshipping these idols rather than inquiring of the living God. And that's why everyone's scattered and no one's prospered. In fact, verse 22, you need to hear this. Destruction is coming from the land of the north. It's already poised. Remember chapter 1 we looked at last week where the, the pot is tipping from the north. Judgment's coming on Israel and Judah from the north and it's going to make Judah desolate. A place where jackals live. Well, what do you say in response to that? What do you say in response to a world that prefers a tree stump dressed in purple to the living God. What do you do when the consequences of that sort of folly, because it's not just folly in the sense of unintelligent, although it is that. It's folly in the sense of rebellion. It's evil and it's wicked. Because of this, the wrath of God comes. And so what do you say in response? Jeremiah prays, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. This is tough. There's a sense in which it is likely to be taken in a general and global way. We are not able to depict, or we are not able to pick or decide upon the times in which we live. We talked about this last week a little bit out of Jeremiah chapter 1. There are going to be events that take place in the circumstances of our lives that we do not want. But it's not, it's not up to us. The Lord directs our steps. The Lord ultimately is, is in control of our lives. And that can, that can bring comfort, ultimately. 
but it could also be very hard. Jeremiah looks at this destruction coming and says, Lord, I know, I know. I understand. At one level, I understand that this isn't up to me. But God, at another level, does it really have to be like this? Lord, discipline me. I can accept that. But, but not in anger. Lord, Lord, if there needs to be refining, be careful, because you can actually destroy me. You can reduce me to nothing. So yes, Lord, pour out your wrath on the nations, the ones that don't acknowledge you at all, on the peoples you do not call on your name. After all, they've devoured Jacob. They've attacked your people and destroyed his homeland. In other words, yes, there's a place for wrath. Another prophet, I could praise, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, yes, there can be judgment, but Lord, restrain your anger, at least meet us in due measure, or else we will be destroyed. We cannot endure this. Yes, this is my sickness, I must endure it. But Lord, unless there's, unless there's grace, it's actually unendurable. It, 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 it can't be persevered through. It can't be overcome unless there's mercy, unless there's grace. If all there is is anger and wrath and punishment, we will be completely destroyed. And he's right, you know. If it's only anger and wrath, then we will be completely destroyed. If there isn't mercy, if there isn't love, if there isn't grace then not a single one of us will be able to endure this life. But even more importantly, not a single one of us will be able to endure the time when we stand before God to render an account for what we have done and for all the things that we have failed to do. And so this is another text, which although there isn't, there isn't one word about Jesus here, Oh, there isn't one word about the cross or about the resurrection. It is a text that drives you to the necessity of grace and mercy, or it's all it's all over. You know, the, the game's up. We're done. We've lost. You know, we we've we've been set adrift in this cosmos, and and, and it's over. It's pain all the way down. It's despair from top to bottom. Just, just darkness, no light. Unless there's grace. 
unless God's a God of mercy. Unless there's a place where... And this, this does give hope. You know, in, 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 in this time for Jeremiah... You know, no one, no one could see how it was possible. No one could see it. You could think, you could analyze, you could worry yourself sick every night trying to figure out how it was possible. But one day, there's going to be one event, one place, one holy tree where wrath and mercy met. And anger and love, which had always seemed mutually exclusive, even contradictory, came together. And out of the darkest dark came the greatest light. And out of death came life. Not just temporal life, but life forever. Because in the end, in the end, the Lord directs our steps for good. And the Lord directed the steps of his Son to the cross to the tomb, then in resurrection glory to his own right hand to rule and reign forever. That's what God does. And Jeremiah 10 begs for there to be something like that. But again, in Jeremiah's day, you could never have seen how it was possible. But in God's grace and in God's mercy and in God's love, wrath and anger do not have to be the final word. And they could actually be subsumed under his eternal love. Well, may God help us uh, in so many ways. But may God help us to stop trusting in the things that will invariably fail and let us down. To put our trust in him. To allow him to direct our steps. Trusting that in the end, there's a resolution for all that he has for us. Centered and grounded, our confidence rather, is centered and grounded in his love, which is centered and grounded in the cross. So let's look to the cross. Endure what God calls us to endure. All for his glory. And knowing that in the end, it really is the direction of true and pure love that he calls us towards. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and to lead us in our closing song.